Good afternoon. Today is Monday the 13th of November 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined uh, today by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and also Mark Anderson, who will be joining us from the United States. I'll just say as a start to this news that, my goodness, emotions are very high in this country. And of course, the weekend, a lot of people are focused on London to see what was happening. Uh, we've just picked out part of that uh, to comment on, and we've got three little video clips to open here just to have a little look into what was happening around what we might loosely call veterans and what they were, were doing. Let's have a look at the first clip. Uh, who are these people? Let's just think about what we're seeing here. Now, we obviously played through that little clip uh, twice just to get the effect of the uh, noise. But as I watched it, my mind was taken back to the days when we used to have problems at football matches. I'm not sure who these men are. Are they veterans? Are they not? What was their intent? But uh, just for you, very quickly, Alex, as a quick comment, what, what was your feeling about what was happening there? Well, of course, I've been out of the country for 15 years, but I too am put in mind of the 80s, very early 90s, you know, the, 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 cr the cries of England, England like that, uh, due to social change and fiddling with people's heads have just really uh, declined to a fraction of what they were. There's a sense there of recreating an atmosphere of a generation ago. I'm not accusing the men in the picture of anything, but it's something you don't see anymore. Okay, thank you for that. My final comment on that, of course, is at, without being there and speaking to some of those people individually, it's difficult to get a feel. Um, but we're just throwing that over to our audience. Now, perhaps those sorts of men get accused of things that they're not actually guilty of. Certainly some of the um, established media tried to say that there was violence at one particular incident against the police, which turned out not to be true. Let's have a look at the clip here.
Now, the key point here is that some of the mainstream media tried to say that the police were assaulted in that clip, although the clip itself shows the police were pushed aside, but I would say not directly assaulted. So whatever we think about that crowd, their actual actions might have been forceful, but overall we could say they were peaceful. But who are they? What was their real intent of being there? Uh, if they were passionate, are their passions justified? Are they frustrated they haven't got a voice? There are many questions to be asked, which, of course, the established media are not, is not asking. Um, let's have a look at this wonderful veteran. I don't know this man's name. I'd like to know. But I thought that this was an absolutely fantastic little clip by a veteran. What a lovely morning in the nation's capital. Just arrived on the train making my way over to Westminster. Now, if I was here as part of the Free Palestine uh, march, not a problem. But as an ex-serviceman turning up today, I've been labelled as a far-right yob. That's what I've seen in the press this week. Um, if you label, if you label me, you negate me but do you know what I'm part of the silent majority who is finding a voice becoming less tolerant of people who are disrespecting my culture your culture as an ex-serviceman I fought for my country I buried my comrades and although I'm not a religious person, the cenotaph, to me, is about as religious as it gets. And I won't have it touched in any way, shape or form. I won't have it desecrated. That's me. Alex, can we understand how that man feels? Do we disagree, really, with what he had to say there? I cannot disagree with anything that this Welsh veteran says. Uh, the cenotaph, with its uh, 1920 inscription on it, the glorious dead, uh, to my mind, is desecrated by the people uh, in the building slap bang in front of it, the cabinet office, the hub of the British government, who commit treason after treason on our armed forces and every other branch of government. Uh, but in a secularised and anti-intellectual age that we're now in, for which the media bears much of the culpability as well as the education system, this veteran is on the button. This is the last vestige of religion we have left, the 11th of November and the nearest Sunday. The Church of England has co-opted it, uh, which is now a godless church. So we've got a shell of national religion. Uh, we're now at a very brittle uh, choke point at which we can easily be assaulted and be told by the media in particular, which of two opposing camps have alleged yobs to support. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you for that. I'll just uh, highlight, he said at one point, if you label me, you negate me. And of course, this is what is happening across the board. Groups of people who are really concerned for the right things are being labelled. And we're going to suggest later in this news programme that our own government is part of this labelling process. But let's just have a look at how the BBC dealt with matters. And uh, we're being a little bit cynical here, of course, but the picture by the BBC was of fake poppies. And I think that's appropriate for a fake BBC. But here was how the some of the reporting went. Um, Sky News uh, put out a breaking 
where people were supposedly assaulting the police. That was untrue, and that uh, post was deleted. Um, we also had what I've called the Nazi trope here, rise of the new Nazis. So here are people inflaming the whole thing without, without uh, looking at the wider process. And then this one I've called inflammatory piousness, where we're back to GB News, uh, where we are, uh, where we have uh, spokesmen sort of saying that basically no idea why they should be any of this trouble in the world, because of course you, we, the UK, are doing all the right things. It's all those other nasty people out there. So a little bit of reflection on that. Um, but we also had other social media messages. This is the sort of emotional one for me. The man obviously in the First World War, uh, nearly a breakdown point. Um, somebody says this man would have been deemed a far-right racist, and they're absolutely on the button. This is more thoughtful. Somebody is saying maybe it's time to admit we're being governed by criminals. And uh, this one here I'm calling uniform because uh, what it's really saying is we're right, support our poppies, support our war heroes, um, but if you're not wearing a poppy, you're not really doing the job. So lots to think about. Now, I tried to go in a different direction over the weekend for the UK column. So I put out a particular tweet. Our viewers will notice that I used the same video clip that I, I used on Friday. But I said, we remember our own and we remember all those who've died and are dying in conflicts around the world. Surely they would all want the violence and killing to be stopped. And it's our duty to make the peace a reality. Are you strong enough to stand up and call for that peace? And that is the UK column's position. It is peace. Uh, we put out the video clip and we also uh, changed that slightly to reflect it's not just our gardens, the poppies grow in the fields. And I did have some really wonderful feedback. But have a look at this that was posted underneath. Well, first of all, Tommy Robinson appeared on my Twitter feed, if you like. Uh, but a particular gentleman here said the British... Police tried stopping us from getting to the cenotaph, but we succeeded. He went on to talk about something else. Let's have a look at it. The British are the enemy within. Just look at, uh, at sorry, just look at this. They have destroyed England. I utterly despise them. So I asked this gentleman, who are the British? The next post was the British do not exist. Uh, this is a union created by Fabian Tories. So one minute it's the enemy within, the next minute they don't exist. So I asked my question again, and of course the response was silence. But what we are seeing here, of course, is deep division being created within our country. And here is the break British English. What does this really mean? And uh, the only thing I will say is that this particular veteran, I absolutely agree, he's correct that he's seeing that corruption is the problem. Alex, I'm going to pass it back to you, but we've got to be very careful of our time. Yes, uh, my mind goes back to my native Bedfordshire and the year I left Britain, 2009. Tommy Robinson, whom you mentioned, real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, had a core of really concerned people around him at the time. Uh, there really were some Luton Pakistani Muslims yelling British soldiers go to hell and desecrating that uh, town's cenotaph and everything that Armistice Day stands for. Uh, whatever happened since shows the co-option of that. Uh, but we see the same in the uh, the other protests. We see many, very, very many people, as you covered on Friday, very concerned about Israel's strategy and tactics in the Gaza war. And they also are tarred with uh, the same brush 
uh, as the extremists in the crowd by the media. But let's go on to consider what happened at the Cenotaph. Um, here we've got Morgoth's review written in the northeast of England by, I would say, the leading ethno-nationalist thinker of roughly my generation. Uh, and he, he has a very pertinent point to make. He's well aware, not least because of our coverage of Mindspace emanating from that very cabinet office uh, in front of which the Cenotaph is built, for obvious reasons. And he says the British government has been confronted with a rather sticky political, geopolitical situation. The people who care the most, and of course in the age of caring the most, shouting the loudest, getting the most attention, that's what he's getting on about. The people who care the most about Middle Eastern politics disagree with the geopolitical stance of the government. Well, I would say the lobbyists who control the cabinet office, the ministry office, defense, etc. The left and the Islamic community have taken to the streets in opposition to Israel's highly questionable so-called war in Gaza. Uh, he says the situation for the government is uncomfortable. They supported what seemed increasingly like severe human rights abuses and perhaps even genocide, but without any vocal base of support. Now we get to the mind twist, Brian. Let's see what he goes on to say. You could be forgiven, says Morgoth, for thinking that common sense and the British government's usual scant regard for free speech would result in the pro-Palestine march on Saturday simply being banned. Yet the government allowed it to proceed, which is to say they are creating a situation wherein the thing you opened with, Brian, the patriotic counter-protest, is guaranteed. They come as if called, as the Dutch idiom would say. I spent much of the last week, says Morgoth, pondering how amazingly convenient this was for the staunchly pro-Israel Conservative Party. Was this an operation? At the same time, the replies to my sceptical utterances on social media were full of such sentiments as, at the end of the day, we just can't be uh, excreted on forever without even protesting about it. That is a fair point. But here's the rub of it from Morgoth. The question fundamentally is whether patriotic British sentiment is being manipulated purposefully or whether such casual disrespect and indifference to our hallowed days of remembrance is merely part and parcel of living in a vibrant and enriching multicultural society. Of course, as an ethno-nationalist, Morgoth is having a perhaps justified dig at these, pietists, uh, these, these pious uh, slogans. Yet, he adds, we know that the government engages in nudging and cajoling and behavioural modification, with which he began this piece, to achieve desired outcomes. We live, concludes Morgoth, in a sort of unreality, within a paradigm wherein it is almost impossible to know whether an event or crisis is organic and authentic, or entirely fabricated and manufactured. And he compares the reality of life now with the Truman Show. Um, I'll hand it over to Mark for a brief comment before I go on with my next segment, because I see that he was wanting to come in with thoughts on uh, the Welsh veteran. Uh, yeah, I, I was reminded of a book by Peter Hitchens called The Abolition of Britain. And I was digging through my files and I found my a review I wrote for it in an Indiana Daily paper back when I was in the conventional press. And I think while I didn't agree with all of Peter Hitchens' um, points, I think we're seeing some of the main points come true here. Uh, it's as if Britain itself is being abolished. Yes. And again, the time frame for that is about 2009, uh, the time I left GCHQ and uh, the, you know, the, the time that the EDL was set up on perhaps valid concerns. We see a lot of things going back to that time. And of course, it was the, the time of the changeover from an allegedly socialist government to an allegedly conservative government, about which more anon, because Mr. Cameron features later, who was prime minister from 2010 onwards. Well, a very important article indeed, which has gone up on our website, uh, is going to be the feature of the next segment. And I urge our uh, viewers to break the habit, perhaps, of just viewing 
and really pour over this article, print it out or read it on a device calmly, have it read, uh, read out to you by somebody or by a computer and really digest it. He's asking in the constitution section of our website, which is a unique strength of UK column, I would say, He's asking regarding war powers, because the next stage is committing troops to Israel, of course. Is the United Kingdom a military dictatorship or is it a legal limited monarchy? That's not Phil's own phrase. Uh, that is straight from the Claim of Rights 1689, the Scottish version of the Bill of Rights, uh, which pointed out that we were a legal limited monarchy. And the last time we had a revolution, it's because the Crown didn't, uh, didn't respect it. Uh, we'll go to the conclusion of this packed article for uh, the, the nub of it which is that a librarian in the House of Commons, and we've uh, covered it many times in the past that the House of Commons Library briefs members of Parliament in untoward ways. The advice given by this librarian, Claire Mills, which is that Parliament has no power in the Constitution over whether to commit troops or withhold that commitment, is disinformation. The impact of this misadvice cannot be overstated in light of the colossal budget of the Ministry of Defence, not in the same league as the Pentagon, as we got uh, Mark on today, but still uh, a huge amount of money. Uh, Phil, having reviewed the evidence from the Constitution in the article, says it is clear, contrary to the House of uh, Commons librarians briefing, that the Crown's or the government's sole war power prerogative in our day is that it has an obligation to A, repel an invasion of, or B, quell an insurrection within the kingdom or its dominions and territories, not Iraq or Ukraine or Israel. Classically, says Ridley, these twin duties are referred to as the defense of the realm and keeping the king's peace, respectively, and they correspond with the mention in U.S. oaths of office of constitutional enemies, foreign and domestic. The British Constitution then requires that the Crown, His Majesty's Government, must refer back to Parliament for its consent if any operations go beyond what is strictly necessary once peace for the British people, not the people of Gaza or Israel, has been restored. In the uh, meat of the piece, uh, further towards the top, we see the historical grievance uh, regarding James the Seventh and Second. The quotation at the top there is from the claim of rights, uh, saying that James and his government, because of their the lack of parliamentary involvement in war, had uh, and in pe indeed at peace at home, had altered Britain from a legal limited monarchy to an arbitrary despotic power. And uh, when William the Third came to address that and uh, kick James out and become the new king on invitation of the lords, uh, he said in his declaration of reason, his, his rationale for coming over, uh, that James, if left in power, might be in a capacity to maintain and execute his government's wicked designs by the assistance of the army and thereby to enslave the nation. Um, Philip Ridley says that you know, this is no hypothetical risk uh, because of the 77th Brigade shenanigans that we've seen where a scandal is created uh, spying on uh, members of parliament leads to uh, a situation where their foibles are um, uh, elucidated in public. And then come, uh, along comes the same man, Elwood, who was then chairing the Defence Committee, saying what we need is military government in response. Um, so here's the real uh, key point here. Uh, print out, please, in particular, this bit and pick one piece from this section that Philip Ridley has carefully put together with his expertise and write to your member of parliament uh, about that one. Don't put too many points in it, just one at a time. He says that, for example, we could go back to uh, a yearly Armed Forces Act so that Parliament, not just once every five years, but once every year, as it constitutionally and historically did, scrutinises what the 40, 46 billion pounds of our military budget, our seventh, sixth, a sixth of our income tax is going on. He says Parliament could legislate uh, to, uh, or, or rather use better, make use, better use of its defence committee. It could have subcommittees looking at nefarious areas of warfare rather than just one 
big blob in the, in the Defence Committee itself. He says that Parliament should be asking about robotics and artificial intelligence and space weapons. Uh, now with China and Israel getting in on the act, we are in the age of space weapons, let alone the US Space Force, uh, which is very secretive about what it does. But Britain's in there too. Phil says, crucially, that only Parliament, forget what their librarians tell you, which is proven wrong in this article, only Parliament can carry out this scrutiny because it's by statute, which is Parliament's domain, that we have classification of state secrets. Parliament can overrule a classification, set it aside, quote things in Parliament with the Speaker's permission without being tried for uh, uh, giving away state secrets. Uh, and he points out that 77th Brigade's role was exposed largely by UK column and that this may have led to Tobias Elwood resigning from that uh, role on the committee. So plenty of, uh, of detail there that needs to be got out. Uh, and I just implore people to select one of those points and ask their member of parliament, why aren't you doing this? And don't be satisfied with a fob off. As we often say, go to the uh, uh, constituency chairman or chairwoman of their party that put them in the post if they tell you to get lost or don't reply and say, I am not satisfied with this failure to engage with the, the electorate. Alex, uh, thank you very much. Did you have one further? I think you had one further slide to cover. Yes, uh, this is quite important too. Uh, nobody will confirm nor deny, says Phil, Edri uh, Phil um, Ridley, whether Elwood was in active service with the army when he was chairing the Parliament Defence Committee. And this reminds us of Mike Robinson's opinion piece. I think it's still on the homepage under Editor's Choice. Members of Parliament are not entitled to a private public life. This is another of the things that we'll be told, you know, go away. What are um, uh, defence ministers and uh, members of parliament do behind your back is none of your concern in foreign uh, combinations. Read Phil Ridley's article. There's enough historical precedents to show that up for the bunk that it is. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, I'll just say that uh, UK Column News today is encouraging people to think that groups within society are being played. Let's go back uh, to the UK Columns Report 2015 and have a look at what we were talking about. So in those days, we were allowed to quote Russia Today. It came from Russia Today, but the information was correct. The headline was Degrade, Deceive, Discredit, Psychologists Condemned for Aiding GCHK. Q, sorry, manipulation techniques, struggling over that one, apologies. And uh, this was the depth of it. We had a psychologist, uh, Mandeep Dharmi. Uh, psychologists work for GCHQ Deception Unit in Flames debate amongst the peers. And a little bit of uh, information on it is that what was this all about? Well, the, the words tell us uh, discredit, promote distrust, dissuade, deceive, disrupt, delay, deny, denigrate, degrade and deter. So these are not uh, terms to bring people together. These are terms to split people. Uh, I wish initially we were told this was uh, techniques to be used on our potential enemies or enemies. But of course, what then became apparent is the very same techniques were going to be used on dis on domestic groups that the government didn't like. So UK column warning and warning people that this was going to happen back in 2015. And uh, GCHQ apparently said the agency is aware of the responsibility comes with the nature of its work. And in addition to the legal accountability, we also take ethical considerations surrounding our mission seriously. Alex, I'm just going to give you 10 seconds, but when I read that paragraph now, I want to cringe and I want to laugh because I can't take this statement seriously. 
thousands of people working at GCHQ uh, in my day in the 2000s did take it seriously. Not all of them were naive, uh, but I wasn't aware then of the deceit that goes on at the, at the level of legal advice and the parliamentary and cabinet office hobnobbing uh, that goes on there. In particular, I think of one uh, jumped up uh, lad of my age wanting promotion who, when all this stuff was happening in the mid-2000s, called it shaping the environment, admitted that it wasn't intelligence, knew that it had no statutory footing at all, and said it's illegal, but we're going to do it because it's exciting and it will probably be retrospectively legalised. Okay, thank you for that. Well, if we put a bit of meat on the bones in our reports back in 2015, this is some of the stuff we covered. So here's GCHQ, The Art of Deception. Uh, there was more to it. I'll let you freeze the screen so that you could have a look at uh, this one's called Gambits for Deception. Uh, but we've also got The Guardian here in 2015. British Army creates a team of Facebook warriors. And this, of course, was highlighting what was coming with 77 Brigade. And of course, 77 7 Brigade boasted that it was going to be supporting the government in surveilling uh, the population during COVID. Uh, this is a little bit of historical track record uh, report with The Guardian recruited by MI5. The name's Mussolini. Documents reveal the Italian dictator got a start in politics in 1917 with the help of a £100 weekly wage from MI15. I think we'll talk about this a bit more in extra time, but the point I'm making is can we trust our own government? And it appears historically and in the present time, no, we can't. Here's another article that we reported about a summit uh, at a discrete location. And uh, we've got big names. So we've got Apple and Google meeting with former CIA and also GCHQ personnel. Of course, no minutes of the meetings. We've got to simply trust these people. They've got their best interests at heart for us. Uh, we go on. We had the government clamp down on free speech in Leveson. And at the time, we highlighted uh, in Mr. Leveson's work uh, that an email from myself had turned up in the trial bundle in reference to a case involving the former head of Scottish law, uh, Eilish Angelini, and I asked if that was hacking. And uh, of course, if we think back, UK Columns also given a lot of detailed comment about warnings by the Chief Constable of Devon and Cornwall in this place, where he said it's fatal to let the Secret Service into the area of ordinary crime. So we've got fully qualified people desperately worried at the encroaching power of the state and secret services. Again, I'm going to let you freeze the screen on this. Uh, but here we're also warning about the UK government's involvement in torture in Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere around the world. But we, the population, are told to trust our government. And if I just bring in this one, this is the web around David Cameron at the time when we had child abuse um, uh, exposure coming in UK. But it was very clear that far from working to bring the child abusers to account, it appeared the government under David Cameron was almost working to close this down. So in the little diagram there, you can see some of the links. But remember that MI5 was uh, in the sidelines and had also taken steps to make sure that no uh, bad reports had come out about child abuse. But the point we made back in August 2015 is that David Cameron was responsible for the UK intelligence machinery as a whole. And uh, where does that take us? We warned very clearly 
with a cartoon, of course, who the domestic terrorists were. But look at what we said. The media would be gagged. There would be secret courts. The NHS would be wrecked. The military would be betrayed. The paedophiles would be protected. The police threatened genocide overseas and banking fraud. And the key issue with uh, Mr. Pickles on the right was that he was claiming big society was for our benefit. And we said, no, that's not true. This is increased state control. Where does that take us to, uh, Alex? This morning, there's been a bit of a bust up, uh, in fact, overnight uh, in the front benches of the British government. Um, out as Home Secretary has gone Suella Braverman, apparently because she was uh, narky to the police over the cenotaph issue. And so uh, a lateral move uh, by the gentleman on the left, James Cleverly, goes from being uh, Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth and uh, Development Affairs back to, or not back to, but over to uh, Queen Anne's Gate, the Home Office. This leaves a bit of a gap uh, for Foreign Secretary, uh, including the huge development budget now, which we're very uh, concerned about at UK Column for its, uh, what it's used at. So former Prime Minister David Cameron, rather unprecedentedly, is coming back, not as Prime Minister, uh, but as something slightly below that, Foreign Secretary, for which, of course, because of our parliamentary conventions, he had to become a parliamentarian again. He's resigned his seat as a member of parliament, as did previous members of uh, prime ministers who left in a hurry, like Blair. They didn't want to see out their terms. So Cameron did resign, uh, but he's now being given a, a baronetcy uh, by the uh, uh, dint of the prime minister imploring the king uh, so one wag has suggested that he will take the title of Lord Cameron of Ham. I'm not sure what his title will be, but watch this space because our constitutional writer, Philip Ridley, will be educating our audience with some vital further points on this. Why is it that everyone who is a minister of the crown has to be a parliamentarian? The last foreign secretary who wasn't an MP 40 years ago was Lord Carrington, a very questionable man. Uh, but since then, the convention's been you have to be a member of parliament. So the Foreign Office will only have a junior spokesman in parliament it's in, in, in the House of Commons. Uh, thank, thank you, Alex. Well, extraordinary and uh, I'm going to say frightening that Cameron should be coming back into politics. But we've also had rumours that uh, Tony Blair was going to be the ambassador for peace for uh, Israel. So that should fill us with combination. Now, let's bring uh, Mark in. Uh, Mark, you're going to talk to us about decarbonising the world. In Indeed. Um, just one moment. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, that what you're saying there is uh, almost um, suggesting that maybe on our side of the pond, Obama or Clinton will come back, in which case I'll really be terrified. We'll see what happens, right? Yeah, what we have here is the Infinium website, a technology website, and something very strange is happening. And today's report by myself will uh, delineate that. All of a sudden, just within the last couple of months, especially, we're hearing the word decarbonize, along with the words uh, climate breakdown, very catastrophic, very chilling, gloomy um, kind of um, uh, projections. And so with decarbonization in a world wall to wall with carbon based life forms, how do you decarbonize? Well, they don't fully explain that. But on this Infinium website, we see things like this next slide help us confront climate change, more than 25% of the world's harmful CO2 emissions, CO2 being a gas of life, are generated by planes, ships, and trucks that move goods and people around the world. Well, that's extra CO2, they say, from these emissions. Reduce global transportation emissions, 8 billion tons of CO2 
reportedly, are emitted annually into the atmosphere by global transportation. Well, that's the global free trade system and impossibly long supply chains that the globalists themselves who protest climate change have put together. So this is their own trade system in a way coming back to haunt them, you might say. Now, in this context, we're hearing that the answer to our prayers is something known as e-fuels. And this is also something that, while not unheard of, is being trumpeted as loud as possible just in the last couple of months. E-fuels, as this slide shows, are otherwise known as electrofuels. And they're a, synthetic, they're a class of synthetic fuels, a type of drop-in replacement fuel. They are manufactured using captured carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide together with hydrogen up, obtained from sustainable electricity sources such as wind, solar, and nuclear. The process uses carbon dioxide in manufacturing and releases around the same amount of CO2 into the air when the fuel is burned for an overall low carbon footprint. That's the holy grail of achievement there, low carbon footprint as we all know. Electrofuels or e-fuels are therefore an option for reducing what are called greenhouse gas emissions from transport, particularly for long distance freight, marine and air transport. The primary targets are methanol and diesel, but also include other alcohols and carbon containing gases such as methane and butane. Uh, moving on from there, um, we see another twist in the story. Uh, nearby here in Illinois, a couple states away from where I'm at, Western Illinois to be exact, we have Illinois farmers and environmentalists, this is a Chicago Tribune article, a very recent one, celebrating the defeat of a $3 billion CO2 pipeline. CO2 pipelines, I wasn't aware there's too many of those in the world. And moving on from there to explain this just a little bit, uh, this is the farmer shown in that Chicago Tribune photo. When Steve Hess learned about a plan to send a $3.4 billion CO2 pipeline through five states, and his corn and soybean soybean fields, excuse me, in Western Illinois, the 68-year-old farmer knew two things. He knew that he'd have to fight the project, which he viewed as a threat to his family's health, safety, and property rights, and he knew it wouldn't be easy. Initially, Hess, who owns farmland that has been in his wife's family since 1869, um, he farms that land, thought the odds of beating out the Navigator CO2, an Omaha, Nebraska-based company backed by the international investment giant BlackRock were slim to none, an assessment borne out when a local lawyer warned, there's no way you can fight this. So we have BlackRock, which is typically marching to the climate change hyper-environmentalism tune uh, behind a CO2 pipeline, which is rather ironic. Uh, but less than two years later, we read on, Hess and his allies, a coalition of farmers and environmentalists across the Midwest, are celebrating an October 20 announcement very recently that Navigator has abandoned that particular pipeline plan. We're going to have a party, uh, Hess was quoted as saying, speaking by phone from his tractor. There are so many people on that team that work so hard, and we have thrown so many stones at a proverbial Goliath here. It's really gratifying that our work paid off. Now, as we read on, things become a little more surreal. And here we have proposed as a way to combat climate change by capturing planet warming CO2 
emissions at Midwestern ethanol plants. So CO2 is captured at ethanol emissions and they're transporting the CO2 via pipeline and get this, and burying CO2 deep underground in central Illinois, the Navigator project was positioned to receive as much as $1.3 billion a year in federal tax, tax credits under uh, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. So get that. Uh, harvesting CO2 from um, emissions from ethanol and actually sending it in a pipe only to bury CO2 underground. This is just amazing. And again, this is all very relatively recent developments that we've barely heard of. And so this is what we're seeing. Meanwhile, we have another uh, aspect of this. And in this next slide, we have the uh, father of global warming. He's known as, in fact, as the godfather of global warming going back to the 1980s. And this is a Associated Press headline, Pioneering Scientist Says Global Warming is Accelerating. Some experts claim um, his, uh, some, some experts call his claims overheated, excuse me. And there's a picture of James Hansen, uh, the godfather of global warming. But he also said in another paper that he wrote, which has been quoted widely, that even decarbonization now isn't enough. So we're seeing a... a um, a development of technologies and different actions and um, different pursuits that are really showing that they're really ramping up the overall climate change narrative uh, in ways that were not very common even just a few months ago. And uh, Mr. Um, Hansen, uh, in, in saying that decarbonization is not enough, I'm pulling up an article here on another screen, he says that uh, we need the rapid phase down of CO2 emissions requiring a rising domestic carbon fee with a border duty on products from nations that don't have a carbon fee. Secondly, going beyond just decarbonization, Hansen says the West must cooperate with developing nations to help them achieve energy paths consistent with a propitious climate for all. And thirdly, Hansen believes that increased global warming will bring dangerous consequences. So therefore, he argues we should research and develop temporary purposeful actions to address Earth's now enormous energy imbalance. And he says that imbalance, and get this, the imbalance comes from the fact that we've cut down on other pollutants, particulate, particulate matter and things like that. And the air is actually cleaner. But he says the ironic consequence of that is there's less particles to reflect solar radiation back into space. Therefore, with cleaner air, now supposedly we have more global warming. So these are a lot of the contradictions and ironies that are coming out around this issue, but they're really ramping up the narrative on uh, climate change and global warming overall. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Mark. They're ramping up uh, the rhetoric. Could this be that their argument is starting to come undone? We'll stay on the case. Well, we'll say to our audience, if you like what we do, please uh, join UK Column. Please become a subscriber because, of course, it's the subscriber base that keeps us going. We can only do what we do with your financial support. So have a think about that. And of course, you can join in the community. You can also help us by purchasing something for the shop. And also, we just like to point you at the annual lifetime membership, uh, which you can buy 
as a present for somebody else and encourage others to get involved with UK Column. So you might like to think about that. And of course, we say, please share the information because the whole point of what we're doing is to uh, get the word out far and wide. Um, Now, we've had a number of emails over the last few weeks. Some of them are quite tough and we're big enough to take those tough emails. But I just thought I'd put one up today where somebody was giving us some praise. Anna Mike Walsh says, very powerful show yesterday, Brian. UK Column is simply the best news programme out there. Wishing you and your family best wishes for this Remembrance Weekend. Well, of course, we don't think uh, that we get it right all the time, but I am echoing back a big thank you to all the people who are sticking with us in these rather emotional times and giving us some credit for what we're doing. So, Mike, thank you very much for that. I'd also like to remind people we've got a very good interview with Roger Meeklock, the vet. Uh, This is Debbie coming out at one o'clock on the uh, 14th. So watch out for that one. And uh, I'd also just want to say a big thank you to people who've continued to send me lovely emails in support of Sam, this lady who was trafficked and then had her children taken. And I just wanted to highlight that if you go looking at migrant families being targeted, uh, what you see is a pattern. It is not just UK, it's happening in other places. So on screen, I've got migrant families in Sweden accusing social services of kidnapping their children. And I can overlay that within Norway, unjust social services target immigration families. And of course, why do they target the immigrant families? Because they're inherently vulnerable. Um, Now, where does that take us? I think it takes us back to you, Alex, and Ukraine. And just on the matter of uh, migrants being targeted, the Smirnov family, ethnic Russians from Latvia, uh, had their children uh, stolen in uh, the Dutch province of Gelderland by the local privatised uh, so-called youth care facility. And that case was taken all the way up to the European Parliament. And in the same time frame, the same victim state, Latvia, uh, had a meeting uh, between its embassy in London and the family court, as we reported at the time, uh, protesting vigorously that their uh, nationals were having their children targeted for stealing. Now, in Ukraine, Things are getting very desperate on the battlefield. In a moment, we'll have some quite harrowing video clips just to pre-warn people if they want to look away. First of all, though, the New York Times uh, has this rather striking image uh, of a group of uh, women aged between their 20s and their 40s being trained, all volunteers, of course, doing it in their spare time, in how to set booby traps uh, using grenades and trip wires. Uh, Here's the New York Times' uh, uh, banner for it. If not me, who? Uh, With so much in the war against Russia hinging on refilling the ranks of soldiers, we see that they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with conscripts now, efforts are underway to draw more Ukrainian (laughs) women into the army. And they quote uh, a woman of the remarkable age, really, for volunteering of 46, Olha Bakhmatova, who says, "Okay, there's something wrong with you, whether man or woman, if you want to fight in the trenches. But now she says, I understand. I read that, Brian, as now that the mind uh, control has worked on me enough, I have had my opinion flipped. And she suddenly gets it. If not me, then who? Then go and volunteer. Uh, now, this leads to quite horrendous things going on. There's no blood or violence in the first clip, but it's just psychologically harrowing. Here we see the first confirmed footage of Russian forces in Ukraine taking a pregnant Ukrainian soldier uh, captive. Пойдем только медленно, не спеши. 
Серега, контроль. Не дергайся. Держи, я посмотрю. Ты что тут забыла, беременная? Don't hit me, I'm pregnant, I was abandoned, she squeals in abject terror. How are the men faring? Well, the next clip, I'm afraid, does show death, uh, so we, be, be advised. Um, you will hear from the right-hand uh, oral uh, perspective, your, the right ear, that a Ukrainian speaking in English is telling a mixture of Ukrainian and foreign volunteer mercenaries um, uh, to stay in their trenches and not think of deserting. The wording is not quite that explicit. But keep a look at the left background of the image and you will see two men walking in a crab pincer gate, presumably against the two to minimize the chance of being hit by a mine. They are reportedly, we cannot confirm it, reportedly they are American mercenaries in what's called the, um, the barrier detachment in other words, stopping men from deserting. And they steal across the image and shoot dead um, the two men who are coming up out, out of the foxhole, out of the trench without permission, who are uh, making uh, as if to escape. And it's, this is caught on the head-mounted camera of one of them who ends up slumped horizontally on, on the ground as he's shot. You will see that the, the other man who's trying to desert is then finished off. So we can't place exactly where this happened, but it is uh, not contested that this has happened in the last week. Okay, guys. Go. Whoa, Are you okay? Anybody wanted? No way here. Mine field. Go back to the position because there is a car. Go. Hold. Hold back. Hold back. Stop. Stop. really brutal um, and it is reported that these are u.s men who are being uh, you know counted upon for their loyalty which has been bought or ideologically obtained um, to finish off uh, conscripts who are wanting to desert a hopeless scene in the battlefield what's been happening in the meantime in brussels the european commission the bureaucratic or executive arm of the eu has uh, announced in a press release of wednesday last week uh, that it has adopted the annual enlargement package, which sounds a, a very questionable thing, but is just the standard European language, uh, EU language for um, uh, policy papers each year on who gets to join the club. And the EU has decided that the, uh, that the front of the class this time are Ukraine and Moldova, and then behind them are various other European countries, uh, Eastern European fringe countries, Georgia and various Balkan countries. But Ukraine and Moldova have been such uh, good pupils uh, that the Commission has recommended, this has to be ratified by Council and Parliament, uh, that uh, accession negotiations now formally begin. So the uh, Ukrainians are looking at uh, formal EU membership before too long, uh, including the Moldovans with the frozen conflict in Transnistria with its Russian bases and presence. This is going to get quite sticky. In reporting this, Politico, in its Brussels arm, which is widely read by Eurocrats, uh, says that in the byline here, U.S. support for Ukraine is risking waning, i.e. it is waning, and the EU is pulling Kiev in, i.e. by uh, this measure of, uh, of making them a formal candidate for accession. Brussels will have to shoulder a much larger share of the burden. There are uh, two children waving the EU flag in Kherson uh, depicted. And here's the analysis from Politico. 
while the EU is pulling Ukraine closer, the US is loosening its ties. Washington is shifting its foreign policy focus to the next war in Israel. Uh, and uh, the US Congress was divided on supplying more aid to Ukraine, a very hot potato recently. Where does this leave Zelensky? Well, uh, in picking up something that's been reported by Sputnik, which is, of course, a very partisan source, the Asia Times, based in Hong Kong and Thailand, uh, is reporting uh, there is a growing consensus that the West wants to uh, replace Ukraine's president. Larry Johnson, a uh, well-known ex-CIA commentator, says that uh, CIA and MI6 are already uh, setting Zelensky up for a fall. Either he will be forced to call elections and happen to lose them, as it were, Basaj's uh, loss, or if he says yet to that, he will be replaced in a Maidan-style upheaval, which, of course, uh, Ukraine uh, suffered at the hands of Britain and America nearly 10 years ago. Um, there's been uh, you know, other things going on very quickly, such as that uh, uh, Major Gennady Chastyakov, who is uh, the right-hand man of uh, General Zaluzhny, who is in the running, apparently, to, to, to be the, the next anointed successor on behalf of the West. Uh, that right-hand man of General Zaluzhny was blown up in a very suspicious grenade uh, incident, which was put down to uh, an accident with his son's birthday present. And this would have been the man coordinating General Zaluzhny's uh, steel, uh, you know, march on power, as it were. And it just so happened that The Economist, mouthpiece for the British deep state, uh, got a long interview featuring the, the virtues of General Zaluzhny recently. So that could be the way that wind is blowing there. Uh, at the end of this segment, Zero Hedge picking up on the Washington Post, uh, a big establishment newspaper in, in the US, of course, uh, reports, and the show notes will have the link to the Washington Post piece behind a firewall and also to the Zero Hedge cover story, um, that the Washington Post has dropped a bombshell on the Nord Stream uh, issue. Now we've got the naming of a colonel, Roman Chervinsky, uh, as apparently the Russian, sorry, the Ukrainian special ops man who oversaw this. Whether he's a full, go, full guy or not, it remains to be seen. But uh, one of the system papers, the Washington Post, has decided to finger him. And this could again be down to this deniability that uh, Zelensky could say, I didn't order uh, uh, Nord Stream, but Chervinsky, being one of Zelensky's men, could be then set up for the full. Alex, thank you very much for that uh, commentary uh, from people watching UK Cold News today. Is it's so difficult to keep up with what's happening in, in the Middle East and Ukraine. And of course, this is part of it, isn't it? How do you control the mind of the population? Well, they're confused. They don't know which bit to look at. But of course, what we should be focused on is the men and women creating and prosecuting these wars overseas. Despicable. We've now got pregnant women on a battlefield created largely by the West. Mark, let's uh, bring you in because while all this is going on, of course, we should make sure we're paying attention to the growing power of urban leaders. The Global Cities thing is moving on. Uh, it's been going since 2015 in earnest. I've been covering it since 2016. Today is just a basic update. As of today through Wednesday, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, that's the former Chicago CFR, is having its annual Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. That's the same family as J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois. Lots of money there, Hyatt hotels, lots of other wealth. And this year's program and theme, as we're seeing here, is Harnessing AI Tools for Urban Leaders, November 13 through 15, Chicago, about 90 miles that way across the big lake. And here's a little bit of information just to uh, put a little frosting on the cake. Artificial intelligence is reshaping our world. I've reported on this before a little bit. 
It can help efficiently deliver social services, maybe even pizzas, right? Identify workforce trends and necessary skills and provide localized climate predictions, how convenient, but without ethical and transparent use, that's true, AI can easily exacerbate inequalities, intensify surveillance, you think, and imperil democracy. Now it's incumbent upon leaders at all levels to internationally leverage AI's potential, intentionally leverage rather, AI's potential and internationally for the good of society and the planet. This type of impactful leadership is only possible when great minds, they're talking about themselves here, when great minds are converging to share experiences and build a collaborative future. Such humility. That's why today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, the Prisker Forum and Global Cities will host Harnessing AI Tools for Urban Leaders. Do not miss this opportunity, et cetera. And if I can't get there in person, say tomorrow or the next day, I believe they're going to live stream it. And sure enough, stay tuned next week for video clips from the Global Cities Forum, Harnessing AI. I'll have something for this, uh, something on this next week, gentlemen. But we have to keep in mind what the Global Cities Movement is about, and that's to Uh, give municipal leaders powers beyond their normally delegated city charter powers, beyond their normal municipal powers, and get them directly involved in national and even international policymaking, which is constitutionally unsound and basically unlawful. So there's a lot going on in terms of bending the rules of civics and bending the rules of constitutions going on here. And that's the bigger picture. And then we just look at the individual topics being discussed and how the dynamics work. So much more next week. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that and something very much for our audience to keep their eye on this growth of the rules-based international order and the power that's now being given to the city-state over and above the sovereign nation-state. Alex, let's bring you back in and uh, the subject's Washington and matters around Washington. Just down the road from Washington, D.C., is the closest thing the United States has to a city-state, the mini-state of Delaware, not quite as small as Rhode Island, uh, but uh, one which has decided to turn itself into a special kind of jurisdiction where all kinds of nefariousness and tax breaks happen. Well, it's run by the DuPont clan, originally French uh, manufacturers of chemicals and armaments, uh, many, many accusations of an eyebrow, uh, eyebrow-raising kind about that family. Uh, but the Bidens moved from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, in uh, Joe Biden's father's time, to Delaware for work. And Zero Hedge, again, doing its service of picking up on what the Washington Post is saying behind its paywall, uh, correctly uh, reports on this as follows. As the mainstream media turns on President Joe Biden heading into the 2024 election, uh, the backstory to that is that the Obama clan I think wants him gone because he's an embarrassment. The Washington Post decided to bring to prominence a little known connection between the Bidens and the DuPonts, which I won't go into. It's a a yawnsome detail of uh, how the social climbing Bidens managed to get themselves into an exclusive East Coast golf club. Uh, But how does Zero Hedge headline this? The Biden-DuPont nexus from a prestigious golf club to a controversial child rape plea deal. Could this be the next thing that the US system press is allowed to find out about? Zero hedges already. This isn't in the Washington Post piece that they picked up on. But when Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son, was state attorney general in Delaware, uh, he gave a plea deal in 2009 to the DuPont heir, who was accused of raping his own toddler daughter. Uh, a 20-year sentence was wangled down to a no minimum prison time statement on the basis of fourth degree rape. Now, of course, Biden Jr. claimed afterwards it was a it was a shifty, uh, a shaky ground for the case and. Uh, 
that he probably wouldn't have got the conviction through court. But uh, given the amount of connection and social climbing between the families, who knows? These things are now allowed to be noticed. Uh, the, the now something about the banning of Dutch and German uh, parties going uh, proceeding apace. Forum for Democracy, this has just come through in an email as a press release. Um, is, I'm just pointing this out for the sake of the constitutional matters here. They're finding that their members of parliament are now accused of breaking House rules uh, which the House internally has set on its members for the um, uh, carrying out of second jobs. And Forum for Democracy has said, no, we would we declare everything we do to the taxman. And at the bottom in red, they have put the key point, which is that on a matter of principle, our members of parliament only uh, give uh, accountability to the electors, not to uh, cartel uh, members in parliament. Uh, and they say that there's, that there's no constitutional basis whatsoever or these so-called house rules on good conduct. Same things are happening in, in the British Parliament and other parliaments as well. Uh, over in Germany, a second of the 16 uh, German federal states, this time Saxony Anhalt, has decided that its equivalent of MI5 or the FBI, the uh, Verfassungsschutz, is going to announce in the way that the Germans do, they, they call it out from the rooftops, that these people are now sus suspect and under surveillance. They deliberately aren't secret about this because it's a, a measure to, uh, to terrify the party and would-be supporters. Um, so they're now, uh, besides Thuringia, a neighbouring state, both of them are in eastern Germany where the AFD is much more popular, they're now under surveillance. But look at the poll here uh, carried out for Bilt, uh, a very mainstream newspaper, uh, by the polling agency INSA, it just so happens that on the eve of this announcement in the state of Saxony-Anhalt, AFD had edged out the uh, system conservatives, the Christian Democrats, uh, to overtake them to first place in polling. I'm sure there's no particular um, uh, connection there, Brian. Uh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> I think there was another image to come up on that one, uh, Alex. There is, yes, because this has gone a lot further. Uh, people will remember um, the... Um, uh, Holocaust survivor, uh, Vera Sharav, who spoke a lot to Rainer Filmik, who is now in German detention. And as uh, reported in this blog, in August 2022, as the press clipping here shows, uh, that Vera Sharav was already accused of trivializing <coughs> and denying the Holocaust or Shoah. Uh, and this charge was outstanding from then uh, because she had said, uh, I can see the Third Reich at work in what's happening in COVID. Uh, so Uber Alshner is reporting uh, for that the Bavarian prosecutors, very similar to what happened with Alternative, sorry, for uh, Forum for, for Democracy's Dutch MP recently, Gideon von Meyer, and as I reported last time I was on, they sat on a charge like a sword of Damocles hanging over him for more than a year. And in this case, it took them an alleged 15 months to translate back into German a speech that Vera Sharavin gave in very clear English. Uh, about her fears for the return of the Third Reich, even though a German translation was available online at the time she gave the speech. Uh, and the Nuremberg police went through all the rigmarole of saying, of course, we need an official translation, and it took 15 months. Remarkably, as with von Meyer in the Netherlands, so with Sharav, uh, the, the charge suddenly gets uh, uh, trotted out and whacked at her, and you must come and answer questions just at a time when the German opposition is gaining traction. Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, we're going to end on uh, the subject of China and uh, a little bit tight for time, Mark, but uh, take us through what's happening uh, with regard to women now in China. Once again, ironies abound, gentlemen. China, long known for being overpopulated and having its one-child policy, is now, as the U.S. propaganda belt 
Voice of America, VOA, is reporting, China is now facing a demographic crisis, reading a headline, facing demographic crisis, China pushes women back into the home. The implication being that they're being coercive and making women put on the apron by force. Is that true? Hard to say. Uh, Very briefly here, um, Zhang Nefeng works for a Japanese company in Beijing, married 12 years. She and her husband don't want children. So the VOA is talking about a particular couple that's focused on their careers, making money and enjoying life. They enjoy the freedom. They don't want children. Yet Chinese leader Xi Jinping has in mind for women something different. Uh, due to the economic consequences of a rapidly declining birth rate. Same thing's happening in Japan. I've been reporting about that, among others. According to statistics from China's National Health Commission, China had 9.56 million live births in 2022, and that's a 10% drop from uh, 2021, setting a record low and ushering in China's first decline in population growth in 61 years. Moving on from there, In 2022, about 6.8 million couples registered for marriage, half of the number in 2013, and the lowest level since official registries began in 1986. Speaking at the 13th National Congress on Chinese Women, October 30, the Chinese leader said China must actively cultivate a new culture of marriage and childbearing. Very conservative sounding, almost Christian sounding, right, by the communists. He said it's necessary to do this to strengthen guidance uh, on young people's views on marriage, childbirth, and family. He believes that needs to be done to promote all this, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, to look at fertility support policies, improve the quality of population development. So the state is getting at least somewhat involved in wanting to uh, increase the birth rate. Uh, And this is, as I note here, a complete reversal of China's long-held one-child policy. I'll let there be a screenshot there for those that want uh, more data. Uh, Let's move on, though, to do a little bit of a contrast. Let's go on to the next slide beyond this one. Meanwhile, the U.S. population is finally growing again, we're told, but not because Americans are having more kids. Indeed, very much the opposite in the so-called Christian established nation of the U.S., very much the opposite has been happening. And we see now that Roe v. Wade didn't do so much to trim the uh, outright uh, killing of children through the abortion industry. Here we have New York Times reflecting the Guttmacher Institute. Uh, To the left, we see around 465,000 abortions were recorded across 50 states and Washington, D.C. in six months of 2020. Remember, Roe v. Wade was overturned in June of 2022. And then uh, by 20, here we have on the on the on the uh, on the right, around 11,000 abortions were estimated across 36 states and Washington D.C. in the first six months of 2023. So, uh, moving on from there, I'm not sure where that one takes. I think that takes us on to uh, Alex. We we're going to have to end there, Mark. Actually, if you like, just to give us okay. a a very quick summary comment. But yeah, but yeah, but basically what's happening is the U.S. is going the opposite direction of China and um, decreasing its birth rate to near zero while China is trying to increase it. And the abortion industry is going full tilt um, with something like a total of 500,000 abortions so far in 2023 alone in the U.S. So. 
Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. We must end the news there. I'm just going to say as a little bit of a summary for our audience, please have a think about what is happening around us and why we need to think with some depth and detail about what's happening, who's creating it and why are they creating it. We might ask ourselves, are they creating a better world? And for me, it's obvious they're not. So if you want to, uh, if you want to judge other people don't lump them together as a group. Judge them as individuals by what they say and what they do. That is a good approach to really get to the bottom of the people causing this terrible trouble and violence and killing in the world by their own deeds and their words. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. And a huge, huge thank you to all of the people who are supporting UK Column. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. We will be back for extra in a few minutes. So stay with us if you're a subscriber. We'll end there. Bye-bye.